turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And I want to read these five verses, uh, verses which are actually sort of transitioning us into a transitional portion of this passage, which we'll, I think, see as we continue to look at them. And I want to focus particularly on verse 31, the first half of that verse. What then shall we say to these things? That really is the pivot, pivot phrase, the, the pivot verse that turns us and transitions us, begins to transition us in the direction of the things that Paul wants to say following that verse. And so let me begin again at verse 28 and read through verse 32. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us? all things. Let's pray together. Oh God, how desperately and how deeply I need and how desperately and deeply we all need for you to take this, your word, and press it deeply into our hearts. Lord Jesus, I need to know that these things are true, more true than anything else. And so do the rest of us here. So show us your mercy. Show us your kindness. Give us your spirit. That he might do that work which he alone can do. He can take this, your word, and make it live, make it breathe. Press it deeply into our souls. Show us your mercy. Hear this prayer. We make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Some time ago, uh, probably a year ago, something like that, I had a brief conversation with a man who had recently retired from his position as the chief executive officer of a company he had founded and had been the CEO of from its founding, 40 years. And it was, a, it was a brief conversation, but it was a telling conversation. He was recommending a book to me, and the subject of the book was calling, the idea of the call of God upon someone's life. It was about calling. And he was reading this book, he said, because... Quote, I've been a CEO for 40 years. That's who I am. But I'm not a CEO anymore. 
And so he was reading this book to try to understand who he is with the remaining years of his life. Who am I? There was a, there was a wistfulness in that little conversation. There was doubt. And there was, frankly, a note of confusion. And it seemed pretty clear that that doubt, that confusion, stemmed from this fact. That for 40 years, he was defined by being a CEO. And now, that was gone And with that role, with that function in the rearview mirror behind him forever, he was unsure of who he was. Unsure of who he was. Barb and I have a friend whose father similarly started a very successful insurance company in upstate New York, I think in Albany, New York. Six weeks after he retired, a friend called his office, not knowing that he had left the building. Elvis is gone from the building. Not, know that he, not knowing that he, he was gone, retired, but also gone, and not accessible through the office main line. The receptionist, who had recently been hired by the company, answered the phone when this friend called, and said, hold, please. And she was gone for about 40 seconds. And when she came back to the friend, she said to this friend who had called in, I'm sorry, there's no one here with that name. Again, 40 years, and he leaves the building And the receptionist doesn't know who he is. Let me ask you this morning. What is it that defines you? Who are you? Last week a couple of folks were so nice as they came out after the sermon and were so kind to tell me how much the sermon meant to them. And I said, it's not for you. It's for me. And so is this one, folks. You're listening in to my conversation with Jesus this morning. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we really What is the substance of the bedrock, the substance of the foundation of your identity? When change comes to your life, as it inevitably will, what brings stability to your life? When accusations come, as they inevitably will, whether from your conscience or from your great adversary, the great accuser, the evil one, Satan, where will you go? Where will the place of sanity and security and assurance be? When you fail, as you inevitably will, 
as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a Christian? Where do you find your equilibrium? When you reflect upon your past and you see ways in which you have been hurt, ways in which you have suffered, ways in which you have suffered real wrong, neglect, abuse, psychic damage, soulish damage. Are you able to smile and say, yes, that is real, but it does not define who I am. It does not define who I am. There is something more real, more true, that defines who I am. And it is these things. In Romans 8, 28, foreknown, foreloved, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Who am I in the deepest, most real sense? Who am I as a Christian? Who are you as a Christian? I said before reading the passage that we're at a transitional point in this letter. Through the first seven and a half chapters of this letter, with the exception of the first 16 verses or so, 15 verses, Paul has been dealing with the content of the gospel, the substance of the gospel, what the gospel is, what the good news is. But now here in verse 31 comes the so what part of the letter. The so what part of the letter. The transitional statement, the transitional phrase. What do I make of all of this? What's the significance of all of this? We're moving from theory to practice now as we move in the second, the last part of chapter 8 and then on into chapter 12 with this interlude of chapters 9, 10, and 11 where the Apostle Paul is going to ask a really, really important question for the benefit of his Jewish readers. He's going to answer the question, ask and answer the question, what about the Jews? But before chapters 9 and 10 and 11, he begins transitioning from theory to practice, from theology, if you will, to its application. And these verses, 31 to 39, serve to make that transition for us. We're moving from theory to practice, from theology to its application. And the first thing Paul wants to do as he moves in the direction of application is ask this question. What are we to say to these things? What is the significance of everything that we've been saying so far? Now I want you to see three things. Three pegs. Always, not always, but a lot of times, got three pegs to hang the sermon on. Three things as we make this transition. I want you to see Paul's method as a pastor. I want you to see his method as a pastor. And then I want you to focus in on his focus. I want you to see Paul's focus. 
And then at the end, I want you to see Paul's central thought, the defining and central thought. Paul's method, Paul's focus, and the central thought. Those three things. First, the method. Let's remember where we are, particularly here at this point. This letter is written to Roman Christians or Roman Christians and those who have some interest in the gospel. It's written to real people living at a real place in real time. It is not a piece of abstract theological speculation. Paul's not in some ivory tower someplace. I've said this a dozen times probably, but I'll say it again. He's not in some ivory tower someplace engaging in abstractions. Are there things that are hard to understand? Yes, there are things that are hard to understand in these first seven and a half chapters. No question about it. Things that tax us, that challenge us. But Paul is not engaged in an academic exercise He is, above everything else, a pastor. He's writing as a pastor. More than anything else, he is a pastor. These verses that make up the first seven and a half chapters of this letter, this description of the content of the gospel, is written because Paul wants people to understand that the gospel really is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes it, whether Jew or Greek. That's verse 18 of chapter 1, 17. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And Paul wants people to understand that. He wrestles through the things that he's wrestling through to try to press this home, to try to drill it by God's grace into the deepest recesses of our hearts. The gospel is not an abstraction. The gospel is not speculation. The gospel is not a bunch of ideas. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's why he's writing these things. The gospel is much bigger. We've said this. We'll say it again. It's much bigger than merely forgiveness. It's not less than that. It's not less than cleansing. It's not less than reconciliation to God and God to us, but it is so much more. The gospel means deliverance. The gospel means change. I started rereading a book that I never finished, Shame on Me, Story of My Life. Started rereading a book this last week the title of which is How People Change. How People Change. By Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. I haven't mentioned this to Zach and Glenn yet. Since they're not in town, I'll mention it to you first, and you can help me lobby them for this, okay? This fall, I'm really thinking that it would be a good idea on Sunday evenings, I guess this is a bit of an advertisement, I'm thinking it would be a great thing for us as a church family to study this book together. How people change. And I'm thinking about running some ads. This is at the encouragement of my, the advertising executive to whom I'm married, my wife. She's an advertising person. 
thinking about running some ads. And here's what I'd like the first ad to say in big, black, block, bold letters. Are you ever tired of you? Are you ever tired of you? Then come on Sunday nights and we'll talk about how people can change. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not just my forgiveness, not just my reconciliation, but my transformation leading to what we confessed this morning, ultimately, my perfection. Gospel is not speculation. Gospel is not ideas in your head. Gospel is the power of God for your change. And if you've lost sight of the fact that you need to change, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, don't care how much you know, don't care where you've been, if you've lost sight of the fact that change is God's agenda for you and that you need to change, we need to have a chat. Because you're really missing the whole point of Christianity and the gospel. Paul is writing this letter for the benefit of those who know they need help and for the benefit of those who need to know that they need help. That's why he's writing this letter. And then remember this, remember that these people who are hearing this letter read, who are hearing this thing, and all of the generations that have lived from their day until our day, all of these people find themselves, those who have embraced this gospel, who've heard it preached, who've heard this letter read, and who've embraced it, who've said, yes, that describes me, yes, that describes what I know to be true. All of these people find themselves in the midst of a fight the fight of their lives. They find themselves in the midst of a struggle. They find themselves in the midst of sufferings. It may be persecution. It may be opposition. It may be battles with the flesh, struggles against sin and unbelief. It may just be the groaning, longing, aching for the day when the struggle is over. Paul talks about it throughout chapters 5 to 8. But that's a thing to remember. These are people who find themselves in the midst of a battle, in the midst of a fight, in the midst of real, real struggles. And before going on to talk about particular ways in which the gospel finds expression in the living of life, Paul's method is this. His method is to stop and ask this question, so what? So what difference does all of this make? What difference do these things make? When it comes to application, his first impulse, his first inclination, his method is not to create a to-do list. That's where we want to go. Okay, now I've got Jesus. What do I do? That'll come. And as a couple of the commentators point out, when it comes, it comes as a torrential downpour. Just read chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. It is a tidal wave of imperatives. 
But before going to the list, Paul's method is to get us to stop and ask this question. So what? What about this? He's asking us to think. He's asking us to reflect. He's asking us to pray. He's saying to us, don't pass over these things. Don't rush past these things. He's asking us to stop and marvel. Can you believe this? Can you believe this? What Paul is doing is what some people have referred to as encouraging, quote, the art of talking to yourself. The art of talking to yourself. Or as some other people describe it, the art of preaching the gospel to yourself. Remember who's hearing this. People in Rome, across all of the generations from their day to our day. People who find themselves in the midst of struggles, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of uncertainties, in the midst of persecution. When you find yourself in the midst of that stuff, what do you need more than anything else? Paul's method is to say, stop, listen to what I've just said. Ruminate, meditate, think, take it in, digest it. Do what the psalmist does in Psalm 1. Meditate on these things. And those of you perhaps who have studied Psalm 1 will know that the word that is translated meditate is a word that is used to describe what a cow does when a cow chews the cud. And when a cow chews the cud, not to be unsavory or unpleasant, the the cow that has taken in whatever it is that it has taken in, chews it and swallows it and then regurgitates it and chews it some more and then regurgitates it again, brings it up and chews on it some more. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't pass over these things. Don't go too quickly to the list. If you go too quickly to the list, you may be crushed by the list. Stop. Think. Reflect. Learn to talk to yourself, to tell yourself the truth, to remind yourself of things that are unalterably and inviolably true. Learn the art of preaching to yourself. Here's a book for you. I've recommended it through the years, probably recommended it here. It's a book by David Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And he begins a series of sermons that became a book. He begins that series of sermons with a couple of sermons from Psalm 42. Focusing on the verses in Psalm 42 where the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, my hope and my God. And he makes this observation. This is where I first learned this principle. Learn the art of talking to yourself. Psalm 42. It's the psalmist saying, in effect, don't listen to yourself. Right? But learn to talk to yourself. Take yourself in hand and say, no, 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 that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. 
This is what is true. This is what is true. This is who I am. The art of talking to yourself. The art of preaching the gospel to yourself. Classic illustration. Great illustration. Martin Luther. Some of you maybe know this little passage. Maybe I've shared it before. Some things are worth repeating. Luther, from his commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatians, has this pastoral encouragement and advice for people. He says, when the devil accuses us, ever happened to you? When the devil accuses us, or your conscience accuses you, or some nitwit Christian accuses you, When the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner, therefore you are damned, we can answer him and say, because you say I am a sinner, therefore I shall be righteous and be saved. No, says the devil, you will be damned. No, I say, for I take refuge in Christ, who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan You will not prevail against me as you try to frighten me by showing me the magnitude of my sins, by seeking to plunge me into anguish and loss of faith and despair and hatred and contempt of God and blasphemy. In fact, when you say that I am a sinner, you provide me with armor and weapons against yourself so that I may slit your throat with your own sword and trample you underfoot. For you yourself are preaching the glory of God to me. For you are reminding me, a miserable and condemned sinner. See, when the devil comes to you and says, you're a sinner. When your conscience says, you're a sinner. When your conscience, your memory reminds you that five years, 15, 25 years ago, you did something so despicably and horribly wrong, what's the proper response? Is it to say, that's not true? Oh no, it is to say that is true. And what's more, there is more. You don't know the half of it. So you devil, when you come to me and accuse me of being a miserable and condemned sinner, you remind me of the fatherly love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son You are reminding me of the blessing of Christ, my Redeemer, on His shoulders, not mine, are all of my sins. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's the art of preaching the gospel to yourself. That's the art of talking to yourself. That's what Paul wants us to do here. Stop. Reflect, ruminate, think about the things that I've been saying. What has he been saying? If you're a Christian this morning, you have been loved for a very, very, very long time. Foreknown, foreloved, loved from before the foundation of the world. God has set His affection upon you. God has resolved that He would have you for Himself from before the foundation of the world. That is what foreknowing is. And having been foreknown, He has predestined you. And having predestined you, He then in time has called you and He's justified you. 
and He has glorified you in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's the truth. Paul wants us to stop and reflect and think about these things and learn the art of telling ourselves the truth. Now, let's be honest about this. Let's just acknowledge that there are times, aren't there, maybe long stretches of time, where it is impossible for me to do that because I am so ravaged by accusations, by the specter of my own corruption and failure. I am so confused and disordered by circumstances outside my control that have impacted me and shaped me, too plagued by doubts, too plagued by fears, that I simply can't take myself in hand and speak to myself. Barb and I have friends. Um, the brother of the guy is 59 years old and just learned in January that he had kidney cancer. Had half of his kidney removed. Three months later, they determined that the cancer has metastasized. It is everywhere. They are preparing themselves for the worse. The likelihood that in three months he'll no longer be with them. Folks, let's just recognize that whether it's something like that or any number of other things, there are times when I can't take myself in hand, talk to myself, preach the realities of the gospel to myself. What do I do then? That's when I need you. That's when I need the church to be the church. You know what I don't need from the church? I don't need the church to say to me, get a grip, buck up, play the man. Not in those situations. I don't need the church to tell me everything I'm doing wrong. I know full well what I'm doing wrong. I need the church to be the church. I need the church. You need the church. We need the church to fulfill Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth to one another in love. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Hebrews Encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. Folks, there is a principle here. Paul is encouraging these Christians to stop, to reflect, to meditate, to pause, to talk to themselves, to preach these truths to themselves. But notice, notice that he's writing this letter to people he's never met. He is being the church to them. He's focusing on the realities of the gospel for their encouragement. He is fulfilling what he admonishes the Ephesians to do. He's coming alongside, speaking words of profound encouragement to those 
who desperately need them. That's what I need from you. That's what you need from me. Not just in my official capacity up here in a black robe, but together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we need. So that's Paul's method. It's to say, time out. It's, it's to say, stop, reflect, talk to yourself about these things. Talk to one another about these things. Feed on them. Feast on them. Plead with God that he drill these realities deep into your soul. And so what's his focus? It's all of these things we've been talking about. The things he's been saying in chapters 5 through 8 but especially what he has said in verses 28 through 30. What are the things he's referring to? Being foreknown, being foreloved, being loved before you knew you were loved. Lucy is here. Well, there are two Lucys here. They both matter to me. But I have to say that one of the Lucys matters a little bit more to me than the other Lucy. There is the Lucy who is the daughter of David and Tara, and she's right there. And and I want to come hold her, but I don't have to anymore because the other Lucy is here. My granddaughter Lucy. Lucy who was loved before she was known. Lucy, who was loved before she knew she was loved. Lucy, my heart's affection was set upon Lucy before I knew that Lucy was Lucy. That in some small, pale, poor way is a reflection and illustration of what Paul is saying here. Please don't stumble over it. Please don't stumble over this idea of being foreknown and foreloved and predestined to something so extraordinarily glorious that you cannot wrap your mind around it. What are you predestined for? This is striking. You are predestined not only to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but you are predestined to have Jesus as your brother. Did you catch that? Have you caught that in the last couple of weeks as we've read this? Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. How do you think of Jesus when you think of Jesus? Think of him as big. Think of him as of Him as spectacularly glorious. Think of Him as your Redeemer and your Savior and your friend. But think of Him as your brother. He is your brother. He is your big brother. He is your family. Great story. Great story of a little boy who had a neighborhood friend who was a big brother to him, an older brother in the neighborhood, not of his family per se, but a boy who was a couple of years older than this seven or eight-year-old boy. 
And this seven or eight-year-old boy who had the nine or ten-year-old friend in the neighborhood who was kind of a big brother to him, this younger boy came from a deeply dysfunctional family. He hated mealtime. He hated to be at the dinner table because it was either angry and fighting or it was silent and anguished. And you know how silences can be deafening? And the story goes that this seven or eight year old boy would hurry up and finish his dinner and he would run down the street and he would find the window to the dining room and he would hide in the bushes beneath the window listening to the laughter and the joy and the conversation and the happiness in that family. And what did he long for? He longed to be seated at that table to be a member of that family with a big brother who would protect him, love him, care for him, defend him, befriend him. Who is Jesus to you? One of our members said a couple of weeks ago as he, we just had a 30-second conversation on the way out the door. He said, you know that Romans 8.28, 8.29, that business about Jesus being my brother, it almost sounds blasphemous to conceive of such a thing. But there it is. Jesus is your brother. He's not only, not only God the Father has not only predestined you to be like Him, but He has predestined you to have that kind of relationship with Jesus, your big brother. What's Paul's focus His focus is these verities, these eternal realities, the idea of a Savior who delights in me, loves loves me, is that kind of brother to me. Great passage, Hebrews 2. Go think about this one this week in light of what I've just said. Hebrews 2.11. Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Can you fathom such a thing? He's not ashamed to be with us. He's not ashamed for himself to be seen with us. He's way okay with that. That's Paul's focus. And then finally and obviously, what is Paul's central thought? Listen. Nearly three years in and out of this letter, right? We started August 1st, 2009. Nearly three years in and out of this letter. Seven and a half chapters. We have yet to run into the first imperative, except for the two that you find in chapter 6, where Paul admonishes us to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and to alive to Christ where Paul calls us to think and reflect upon these truths. We have yet to get to the first imperative. Do this, do this, do this. Three years, seven and a half chapters. What is Paul's central guiding thought? It's not about what you have done. It is all about what Jesus has done. It's all about what Jesus has done. Who are you? 
What is it that defines you? If the worst conceivable thing should happen, where do you find your stability, your assurance? You reflect upon the past, the things that have been done to you. Where do you find your identity? Paul would have us camp on this, stay with this, talk to one another about this, talk to ourselves about this. The central thought is always what God has done. I am not defined by what I have done or haven't done, but what I will do or won't do, by what has happened to me. I am defined by what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Having been foreloved, predestined, called, justified with the prospect of being glorified and everything in between. May God give us as a church, as individual Christians, may God give us grace to live out of that. To live out of that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what are we to say to these things? These stunning and staggering things. Except thank you. Please, Lord, deepen. Deepen everyone in this room. For me, for all of us, please deepen our sense of wonder and gratitude. Always thanking you that we are in fact defined by who you are and what you have done for us to the praise of your Father's glorious grace. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.